Hello and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. In this episode, we're talking about the Tim Cullen implant. That's correct, the Tim Cullen implant. You know, I do believe that this whole topic of alien implants and abductions is the third rail of, of the UFO study right now. It's so hard to find information on this stuff, and there's so much debunking and accusations and silliness surrounding this stuff that it's really hard sometimes to get a good, clear look at what people are talking about, what they're claiming. But to me, the implants are the key. This is how we really get insight into what these things are and what they're capable of doing. These implants are highly technical. They frequently have been found with combinations of metal that just would be nearly impossible to create here on Earth. Oftentimes, the metals themselves are shown to come from other galaxies. But even, even though we have this hard proof, it seems like you cannot get a fair look at this stuff. So this is the sort of thing, like much of the UFO uh, spectrum, is going to have to be crowdsourced. And the way we crowdsource it is just by talking about it. We are never, ever going to get disclosure from the government or academia or any of these celebrities on what these implants are, what they're capable of, and what they represent. That's my opinion. Now the article begins, it says, the alien abduction phenomena is already inherently strange. Here we have cases of people who claim to have been whisked away by non-human entities from space or perhaps somewhere else who have come back with bizarre tales of being examined, studied, and operated on. One of the weirder areas of the phenomena is what is called implants, in which these entities have hidden within the abductee's body some sort of metal chip or device for reasons unknown. I think the reasons are to track them, aren't they? There have been quite a few cases that have featured this weird feature. One of the strangest and most high profile of alien implants comes from a humble construction worker who one day went on a drive only to be plagued by alien forces and discover an unexplained implant within his arm. It all began with a, with a premonition on April 2nd, 1978. A cement contractor from Yuma, Colorado by the name of Tim Cullen woke from a terrifying nightmare. In it, he had been involved in a terrible car accident along a lonely stretch of highway, and it had been so vivid and realistic that he could see every detail of the landscape around him as the accident played out. It was so real, in fact, that he was startled and not a little relieved to be back in his own bed, but the images from the bad dream still flickered through his mind. Indeed, memories of that nightmare would often intrude upon his waking hours until a week later when it would turn out to have perhaps been a glimpse into the future. So here we have this poor guy, prior to having this implant inserted to, into him by these aliens, has had this terrible nightmare being in this car wreck. A lot of times we have people talk about uh, the alien abductions, there's some kind of premonition ahead of time. On April 9th, Colin was driving with his friend Ken Ruberg along Highway 34 when he was hit by a sudden realization that this was the same stretch of road from his nightmare a week before. It was so shocking in its clarity and sense of foreboding that he immediately thought about stopping the car and turning back, but it was too late. Even as he panicked at this scene from his nightmare, the car went out of control and rolled five times before coming to a stop, leaving him unable to move and with a severely injured neck. Ruberg had somehow escaped injury and helped his friend out of the vehicle before waving down a passing vehicle and getting Colin to a hospital where it was found that he had fractured his neck. He was put under sedation and underwent surgery, during which he had another vivid dream, this time 
of a strange light in the sky hovering over his car as he and his wife looked on in amazement. Things would only get stranger from there. So while he's under the knife, he's having more vivid dreams. Strange. On May 30th, 1978, Colin went to the hospital to have a checkup done on his neck, which was still wrapped in a brace. The doctor's visit went smoothly, and they headed back home along a lonely stretch of Highway 59 through expanses of hayfields and grasslands as far as the eye could see. As they drove at around 11 p.m., he again was hit by a jolt of familiarity, a sort of deja vu as he had lived through this moment before in the dream he had at the hospital and under sedation. He was convinced that the dream, like that of the accident, was a premonition and instinctively looked around for the light that he had seen. At first there was only darkness and then an illuminated object bloomed up from behind a low hill, passed right in front of their car and then once again dipped below the hill. Colin would say of what happened, it went out a ways alongside and as I brought the car down to a stop, it came back toward us a bit. I backed the car up and the UFO went out to the west of us. It came in under the power of telephone lines and hovered over a pasture. It was about 100 foot long and 20 foot wide and about 10 foot high. It didn't make any noise. There were two diffused lights that shone at the back of the craft, one a light yellow and the other red. We couldn't see very good. We sat there and stared at it for a while. After we looked at the two lights for a few minutes, I turned to my wife and told her we might as well go on to town. Now, when I think about it, when I turned and started driving, I did have an odd feeling, but it didn't really register with me. I remember coming back to Yuma, but not looking at the clock. I was kind of shocked by the whole thing. I didn't really think of looking at the clock. He would only later realize that he and his wife had experienced missing time that night, but didn't really give it much thought at the time. Things would even get odder when several years later in 1980, Colin had another encounter with a similar craft with two diffused yellow lights at exactly the same spot on Highway 59. And this would not even be the end of his UFO experiences. In 1994, he was driving with his wife and three daughters about 40 miles south of Yuma when they all witnessed a dimly lit craft with blue and white lights hover over the road right in front of them. They stopped the car and watched it for about 10 minutes before it headed off into the night to leave them dumbstruck. This was all very weird, but he could not put it all together in his head until 1998 when an accident at work would send him further down the rabbit hole. Clearly, you have a guy here that I think has been repeatedly abducted by aliens. It could be a situation where they're just taking the whole family. They don't realize it yet. On this day, Colin was at work when he smashed his thumb with a hammer. Thinking his finger to be broken at the very, or at the very least dislocated, he went to see Dr. Mark Hubner at the Yuma Clinic and get an x-ray done. After the procedure, Hubner was a bit puzzled because it seemed as if there was a piece of metal in Colin's arm. It should not have been there, as Colin had never had any sort of surgery to that effect, to that effect on his arm, making him just as confused as a doctor. That was when it all hit him at once. The accident, the lost time, the subsequent UFO sightings, it all came crashing back to him, and he was convinced that it all had something to do with that thing in his arm. He would say this, I knew then what had happened. I knew it was an alien implant from that first encounter in 1978. There was lost time that night. I have to assume I was abducted. In a short span of time, in 1978, it was, a, it was revealed to me that we are not the only intelligent life in the universe. 
but it was also proven to me that God is always with us. Without a doubt, the events that have happened to me over the past 27 years have had an enormous effect on my life and what I believe. Colin could not remember any actual abduction, assuming that his memories had been white, but he was sure of it. Desperate for answers, Colin reached out to the UFO community and managed to get in touch with Dr. Roger K. Lear of California. You know, Roger K. Lear, I have to tell you, is just he's passed away now, but one of my heroes, I mean, uh, lots of people he took these implants out of. It's just such a skilled surgeon and such, you know, just an open-minded, wonderful person he was, but really a great loss to have seen Dr. Lear pass away. Dr. Roger K. Lear in California had made a name for himself as being a sort of expert on alleged alien implants and had removed them from several patients. After a year of correspondence, Colin made a trip out to a medical facility in Thousands Oaks, California in order to undergo surgery to remove the strange object in his arm, and it would be the ninth such procedure that Lear would carry out. The surgical team, which included Lear and a Dr. John Mastrosino, managed to remove a small metal object measuring about seven centimeters long and four centimeters wide and with an array of long proceptors on one end that were reportedly attached to the nerve endings. The whole of it was apparently covered in a reddish brown membrane thought to be for the purpose of preventing rejection by the body. According to Dr. Lear, the implant was due to be analyzed, saying of it, quote, the implant has been turned over to digital instruments here in California for complete analysis. It seems the more we investigate and learn, the more questions we have. Digital Instruments has technology to measure and analyze matter 10 atoms at a time. We are researching both the biological and metallurgical aspect of Temp's implant. Again, the more knowledge gained, the more we need to know. It is unclear what results this analysis uncovered, and in the meantime, Colin has become a bit of a champion for other alleged alien abductees who have had implants put into them. He is remarkable in being so outspoken on the matter and that he has allowed his real name to be used where so many others like him have preferred to remain anonymous. He has said of his drive to get his story out there and raise awareness of implants, quote, this could be a huge medical breakthrough for doctors who want to use biological metal or implants of other materials in their patients. I feel the American public must learn of this situation. I feel that the membrane needs to be analyzed and developed in the public domain as quickly as possible. It is a given that it can hide metal in deep tissues did it in my body for 20 years. We know it ourselves and our children, etc., to do what properly and morally needs to be done. Several prestigious labs have chemically broken down the makeup of the membrane with the proper research funded by large pharmaceutical companies. Human body rejection of such implants could save many lives in the future. I'm coming forward because someone has to put a face to the alien stories and cause more people to come forward. The more people we can find with implants, the more evidence we are going to have we can study things a lot more and get things done, get rid of the stigma around it. The truth needs to come out. Yeah, and it goes on and finishes up here a little bit. Pretty cool story. Now, that kind of gives you the outline of the whole uh, story of the implant with Colin. Let's take a look at this next article. Now, the second article that I want to look at is from ufoinsight.com. It's written by Marcus Louth, dated October 8th, 2023. It says, Hidden Memories and Strange Metal Devices, the Tim Collin Alien Abduction Story. It begins by saying the alien abduction case of Tim Collin in Yuma, Colorado is intriguing, not only due to the alleged abduction itself, but the apparent recovery of an alien implant. 
and it's got an image here of the of the ship over this old uh, what 1978 car he was in pretty cool stuff it goes on down a little bit in the article it talks about how this whole thing starts it says a bizarre dream and tragic events tim collins story begins with a bizarre and unsettling dream he had during the night of april 2nd 1978 in which he was involved in a horrific traffic accident despite the very intense nature of the dream colin didn't think too much of it a week later however on april 9th he was driving along the highway with his friend ken ruberg and the dream suddenly surged back into his mind only seconds later, the car rolled over multiple times. Ultimately, the crash resulted in Tim suffering a broken neck. Ruberg, who had come out of the accident largely unhurt, managed to free his friend from the vehicle before waving down a passing motorist who took the pair to the hospital. These events, incidentally, were exactly as Tim's dream had played out. It was while he was recovering in the hospital that he had a second intense and strange dream, this time of an encounter with a UFO. He was soon released from the hospital, although he had to return regularly for medical checkups. It was as he was returning from one of these checkups at around 11 p.m. on May 30th, 1978, with his wife Janet, who was five months pregnant at the time, that things would take an even stranger twist. As the pair were driving on Highway 59, Tom noticed a strange, slightly glowing object that passed directly in front of their vehicle a short distance away. The object disappeared temporarily behind a hill before appearing once more a moment later. The object continued on its way as Tim brought the car to a stop. Then it headed toward them, eventually changing their direction, traveling under the power of telephone lines and hovered over a pasture. He estimated it was about it was around 100 feet in length, 10 feet tall, and approximately 20 feet wide. So he sees his craft, he says it's traveling under the telephone lines, and hovered over a pasture. So that means it was really close to the ground, about 100 feet in length, 10 feet tall, and approximately 20 feet wide. He would later state that the object didn't make any noise and that there were two diffuse lights that shone at the back of it, one of which was yellow and the other was red. He and Janet remained where they were and simply stared at the bizarre and aerial object until it disappeared into the distance after taking a moment to gather themselves, a couple went on with their journey. Tim would state two decades later that he didn't think to look at the clock at the time, meaning that it is uncertain if there was any missing time during the encounter, although both witnesses had no sense of missing time, nor did they have any type of memory of being in a strange room or craft. That said, Tim also offered that the more he thought about it, the more he recalled that he did have an odd feeling at the time, and he and Janet decided to go on with their journey. It didn't really register with him, and he put it out of his mind. In the last 20 years after the encounter, many more details come, have come flooding back to Tim. So then it goes on, it says, At some time during 1998, Tim hit his thumb with a hammer while he was at work. Eventually going to see a doctor, as he suspected he had dislocated it, he visited Dr. Mark Herbner at the Yuma Clinic, who proceeded to take an x-ray of the injured digit. When he examined the x-rays, though, the doctor asked him about the piece of metal in his arm. At that very moment, a rush of details and realizations came to him. Finally, he had a realization that the object was a solid vehicle, potentially from another world. Furthermore, he was now certain that they had experienced missing time which was the reason the conversation about deciding to go on with their journey following the sighting was so disjointed. Even more remarkable, he had sudden memories of further encounters 
that occurred years later. Uh, yeah, I wonder if he didn't have them years before, too. In 1980, for example, around two years after the initial encounter, Tim, at almost the same location, would encounter an almost identical craft. He recalled that two diffused yellow lights appeared on the object that then started blinking. At that time, he could recall realizing that the same events had happened in 1978, and were about to unfold again. The craft began to approach, but instead of stopping over the top of him, it simply moved away, eventually disappearing behind a nearby hill. At this point, Tim scrambled back inside his car and returned to Yuma as quickly as possible. There was a further encounter a little over a decade later in 1994 when he, his wife, and their three daughters were traveling around 40 miles to the south of Yuma when they noticed a strange object in the distance with a strange strobe light coming from it. Tim recalled that the object hovered off the road in front of them as he eventually brought their car to a stop. All five of them watched the object for about five to ten minutes before it finally started in motion and disappeared to the north. Of course, as well as the memories and details that suddenly came from Tim's mind was the knowledge of what the piece of metal in his left forearm actually was, an object widely known as an alien implant. Of course, he didn't reveal that to Dr. To Dr. Hubner. Instead, he simply returned home and began researching as much as he could on the subject on the internet. He eventually learned of Roger K. Lear and his apparent work with alien implants. After making contact with Lear, the two men communicated over the next 12 months before Tim finally traveled to Thousands Oaks in California. Lear would remove the alleged alien artifact on February 5th, 2000. The object, which was encased in a strange reddish-brown membrane and was the shape of a melon seed, was about 7 centimeters long and 4 centimeters wide. More ominously, around it was several long preceptors, which Lear discovered had been connected to nerve endings in his arm. When Lear discovered a metal core to the object, he held a magnet to it. Almost immediately, it jumped from the table to the magnet. That was about around half an inch away. Although it was not determined what the object was, given Tim's encounters with UFOs, it was considered likely to be of extraterrestrial origin. Well, you got to wonder how it got in his arm. I mean, obviously he didn't put it there himself. It goes on, it says, potential breakthrough for decades Doctors on it. Yeah, and then it goes on and talks a little bit about how they sent this thing. This is following the discovery and the reporting on it. Colin began to receive a lot of attention from both the media and the UFO organizations looking to explore his claims. And it was this attention that Colin appeared to be rather comfortable with. He was always happy to speak of his encounters, and unlike many other abductees, was more than happy for his real name to be used in newspapers, articles, and news stories. The implant was eventually sent to a company named Digital Instruments in California for further study. However, the results of these studies were largely unclear, although there was little doubt the implant was certainly very strange. Well, obviously we know that. I mean, this is what uh, this is what I don't get about these implants. The people send them off, you know, they have them looked at, and then it's always inconclusive. Now. They can find DNA from a crime scene, you know, 50 years ago. They can dig up, uh, archaeologists can, can dig up graves from 1,000 or 5,000 or whatever, however many ever thousands of years ago and tell us that this people group was, was related to that people group. I mean, there's all kinds of investigative work that's done every day of the week. But it seems like when one of these, uh, when one of these alien implants is recovered from someone's body, all of a sudden we get the Sergeant Soltz treatment. We know nothing. We see nothing. It always comes back as inconclusive, just like it seems like with the uh, 
hairs that are recovered from um, the Bigfoot sites. Inconclusive. So, you know, that's what I find bothersome about this whole case. We have a guy, he's got a clear memory, multiple witnesses, you've got the UFO, but most importantly, you have this little tiny implant that's been recovered that reacts to the magnet that has this membrane around it that keeps it from interacting with the human body. We're not sure really uh, how it's communicating, what it's broadcasting with. It doesn't seem like they really even went that far to find out. But when they sent it off to this lab, this this digital whatever lab in California, and then it comes back inconclusive, or they don't come back, or they come back with nothing. So that's my question: is uh, how do we find out what these things are made of? How do we find a, a legitimate laboratory somewhere where these things can actually be uh, looked at, can be investigated? And we can do this in a transparent manner because um, so far, every one of these cases that I've seen with these with these implants have come back with these really, uh, sometimes they'll come back with some strange results like the case that uh, Jeremy Corbell did uh, where they say, yeah, the, this, this metal is not even from this galaxy, but then it's just left there. It just sits there. There's never any kind of uh, conversation about it in the UFO community after that. That's what I don't get. And that's, why, and that's why I say this whole thing with the implants is such a third rail. Uh, people will talk about the uh, meetings in Washington all day long. People talk about non-human biologics. People talk about wrecked craft. And people will talk about sightings they've had. But it, was, it comes to the implants. It, it seems to be the subject that, that nobody really wants to talk about. And I think it's because it's so real and it's so in your face. And it raises so many questions well, it just completely uh, blows away uh, any preconceived com uh, conceptions that people had about these things. Until next time, this is UFO Warning. Over and out.